This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Cardiology and Heart Surgery Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Mark Burkett, Director of Vascular Medicine at the University of Toledo Medical Center in Ohio. Dr. Burkett, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Before we dive into the questions, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? Sure. Um, I'm originally from Ohio um, and did uh, most of my education here. I did undergraduate at Ohio State University uh, in natural resources, of all things, for a major. Um, For uh, med school, I stayed at Ohio State, and then I also did my internal medicine residency there. Uh, And then after that, I came up to Toledo, uh, to what's now the University of Toledo. It was then called the Medical College of Ohio and did my cardiology fellowship up here. At that time, intervention was just starting to kind of surface, and my division chief, uh, Dr. Dick Layton, helped me to set up the final part of my fellowship in Toulouse, France, where I worked with Jean Marco, uh, who was really a leading uh, interventionalist in Europe uh, at the time. Uh, And then after that, I came back, stayed on the faculty at the University of Toledo, and uh, over the years, I've worn a number of different hats, uh, medical director of the cath lab. I was division chief for a while, director of cardiovascular research, and now I serve as the director of vascular medicine. Um, and the, the program has, has really uh, uh, grown over the years. And I think a couple of the real turning points were in the early 90s. Um, Chris Cooper, who uh, is now the dean, but... Uh, at that time was an interventional uh, cardiologist in our group, went over and learned uh, the radial technique from Ferdinand Kimeny in uh, the Netherlands. That was in 1994. And about the same time, uh, Gary Ansel, who was uh, a faculty member with us, uh, went down to Ochsner Clinic in New Orleans, uh, where he uh, studied with the Ochsner group to learn peripheral uh, arterial uh, intervention and, and vascular disease management. And so those two events really uh, turned our program in a way that allowed us to kind of get in at the forefront of both the uh, vascular management and intervention world, as well as the radial intervention and, and radial catheterization world. So that really changed the program a lot, changed my career a lot. And, uh, Put us in a position where we could be involved with training both locally and then regionally and uh, kind of put us into national and international meetings as well with some of those topics. That's a fascinating journey and, and to think about you know the lineage that you have come from and how the you've been able to grow the program over the years it just it's really exciting to to see how um, you know being on the forefront of medicine can really make a difference. I'm wondering what are the top three biggest issues that you're seeing in cardiology and heart surgery today? So I think one of the big issues is it's kind of the problem that has come about because of the success that we've had in new treatment. So, you know, I, I look back to, you know, when I was an intern at Ohio State, uh, I remember one time a patient came in with a heart attack and I got an EKG on them and I gave them oxygen and I gave them morphine. And I remember feeling like I didn't really do anything for this patient. And the next day my resident came in and he said, hey, Mark, great job on managing the heart attack last night. And you know, we really didn't do anything. This was before lytic therapy or direct angioplasty. 
we didn't even want to cast anybody uh, immediately after a, uh, a heart attack. And now you look at what happens to a patient who presents to a community hospital with a heart attack. They get thrown onto a helicopter, flown into a tertiary care center. You mobilize the cath team. They go to the cath lab in the middle of the night. Uh, they do a cath. You get stents. Uh, they'll go home on half a dozen drugs. Um, if it's really complicated, they might get, uh, you know, left ventricular assist device. And all of these things really jack up the price of uh, uh, cardiology care. Uh, you look at TAVR and uh, all of the uh, electrical uh, interventions that can be done in the world of EP. And all this stuff is really very expensive. So somebody's got to pay for it. And that creates a huge problem because we're just kind of outstripping our ability to pay for what we can do. Absolutely. I think that makes a ton of sense. You know, when you're looking at new innovations in any field, really, you know, costs can definitely be prohibitive. Um, are you seeing anything that um, is giving you hope that's changing or, you know, how is heart care evolving and how do you see it evolving in the next 18 months or so? So I, I think at the same time that things are getting more expensive, there's always this push to maintain quality, but to do it at a lower cost. So uh, one example is if you just look at length of stay, for example, for an MI patient, uh, the example that I cited back when I was an intern, if you had an MI, you were probably going to be in the hospital for a week, maybe two. Uh, you were going to do inpatient rehab. And now if you have an uncomplicated MI, you know, a 48-hour stay in the hospital is pretty, pretty routine. That's, that's nothing remarkable. Um, interventions can be done on an outpatient basis. Uh, the cost uh, of things like stents, as they have become less of a novelty and more of a commodity, those prices come down. Um, so I think, you know, healthy competition can help to bring some of these costs down. And as we learn ways to do things safely, but uh, more cheaply, uh, I think there is some opportunity there as well. Got it. Got it. Thank you so much for going through that with us. Now, what are you most excited about today and what makes you nervous? I think what's exciting is just the the practice of medicine itself and how even after you've been in medicine for many years, I, I look back, you know, I started medical school 45 years ago and I'm still learning new things. You know, I'll be sitting around with my, my kids at dinner and and they'll say, man, dad's really excited about what he's learning now. So it's not like I've learned a set body of information and then I apply that. It's that there are always new things to learn. And I'm sure that that's true in any field, but certainly in, in my field, I just keep learning new things. Uh, a few years back, uh, I was in a position where there were no other providers for uh, venous sclerotherapy, for example. Uh, we were taking care of patients who had wounds on their legs related to venous reflux. And so I kind of got into a mini apprenticeship, learned how to do that. And so I've added that to my repertoire. And that's just been exciting to add that into the whole practice of medicine. Absolutely. You know, I, I love to hear how things have been evolving and growing. Now, before we wrap up our conversation, can you share three pieces of advice for emerging physician leaders today? Yeah, I'd be happy to. 
I, th I think one of the most important things that I would pass on if somebody is just getting into leadership is to, from the very beginning, think about the long game of your career. So instead of looking at what can get me the most money or the most recognition right now, think in terms of the people that you interact with now, some of those people you're going to be interacting with throughout your entire career. So there are there are people that I know now that I got acquainted with very early in my career. And, and the nature of medicine is that the same people just kind of keep popping up, but they'll be in different environments. So with that in mind, what you want to do is to really try to build into other people. And um, you certainly don't want to burn any bridges. You know, I think about uh, in our in our cardiovascular practice, I, I remember one physician in particular, his name's Joe Abruzzo, and Joe was moving on to another practice. And before he left, he volunteered for extra work. He was helping people out. He, you know, he did so much that he didn't need to do because he was leaving the practice. But well, I can tell you, if he ever wanted to come back to the practice, we would have taken him in a heartbeat. I think if you go through your career with that in mind, it's like, how can you help other people? How can you invest in people realizing that down the road, they may be in some other environment, but you may want to collaborate with them, interact with them. Uh, so you really want to foster uh, making sure that you help people along the way, you help their career, and don't worry about what it's going to do to your career or to your, your finances. That's, That's a right. long answer. For number one. <laughs> number yeah, that's two. a really great point. I, I really like that. So thank you so much for sharing that with us and you know, excited to hear the, the next two points as well. So uh, another thing that I would really emphasize is that it's easy. And I think of all the careers, medicine is one of the ones that really can bring out the, the haughtiness or pride in people. And I think for a young leader, you really need to avoid that like the plague. Um, there's this verse in the Bible that I love that says that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And um, I think pride is something that's very hard to recognize in ourselves, but other people recognize it in us instantly, and it's universally despised. So I think it's really important to uh, have a realistic look at yourself and uh, not, uh, not uh, exalt yourself. Uh, humility isn't really being, you know, talking badly about yourself or thinking that you can't do things. It's simply acknowledging that whatever gifts you have are things that, that you have received. And that kind of puts a whole different light on things. So I would say for any leader, you really want to pursue genuine humility, humility not false humility. And I guess if I would say the third thing, that is uh, when you're in a leadership position, this is something that I, I found as division chief in particular, it's sometimes it's hard to come up with the best idea for something, for somebody to do something. But a lot of times people will have uh, an interest or a desire or a passion, and they are motivated to do that on their own. And I think one of the most important things you can do in leadership is to foster the opportunity for other people to do that. So um, you're, you're, you may not be doing it yourself. It may, might not be your idea, but you don't want to put barriers in the way of people running with a good idea. You want to facilitate it, give them a lot of slack once they come up with a good idea.
So those would be the three things that I would recommend. That's really great advice. And, you know, I, like I said, I really like your, your thoughts right from the number one in terms of making sure you're always trying to help people and knowing that you may need to collaborate with them down the line, um, you know, avoiding pride and haughtiness and then being able to give people a space to run with their own ideas and, um, you know, allowing passion to grow. I think that's fast, fantastic. Dr. Burkett, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I really appreciate your time and I look forward to connecting with you again in the future. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me.